For those of you who I do not know, my name is Ryan, and I'm the college pastor here at Northway. I just want to welcome you um, who are here with us and then who are also in our overflow room and joining us on Facebook Live as well. I'm always excited to come and to study God's Word. Um, so, so a few years back when I was in college with my buddies Seth and Micah, something that we would do to pass the time, probably when we should have been studying instead of uh, doing this, but what we would do is we would take polls of random students as they came by. We decided that we would just ask these random questions. Sometimes the questions were like disputes between us and we figured the only logical way to answer these questions is to ask a bunch of people and see what they think. And so we would take polls of students that came by and, and so, something that, that started happening, and I don't remember how it started and who started it, but the question became, who would win in a fight? Seth or Micah or any combination of the three. And so we'd ask people these questions for our entertainment and, and let me be clear, the, the entertainment of it was because everyone who knew us knew that there was absolutely no way any of us would fight anyone, especially not one another. And so we'd ask them and some people would answer quickly and hurt someone's feelings because of how quick they answered. Others would humor us and really deliberate and weigh out who would win. And so not too long ago, I decided to bring this back. And I went to our staff and I said, who would win in a fight, Pastor Eric or me? And we asked the question, and Eric, you know, he pled his case. I pled my case. Eric is convinced that he would destroy me. I told him that he had every right to be wrong. And so I decided that, that this morning we would just settle this once and for all. We'll have our answer. So what I want to do is I want to have a poll, and I, I need full audience participation here. So raise your hand. I'm just kidding. Y'all know I ain't going to do that. <laughs> Y'all know we wouldn't ever fight. If we did, you know who would win, but you know we wouldn't fight. Here's why I bring this up. This morning, we are in a passage where we are going to read a story where God picks a fight with a man named Jacob, and it's going to end surprisingly. It's going to end with Jacob prevailing. And so that's where we're going this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can get them out and turn to Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. They're also on your bulletin and on the screens or on the YouVersion Bible app as well. So you can turn there. And, and before we read this passage, I want to tell us the story leading up to, to this passage. So leading up to this passage, earlier in Genesis, God, he finds a man named Abraham and he sets him aside. He pulls him apart and says, hey, Abraham, I'm committing myself to you. He said, I am making a covenant with you, Abraham. A covenant, it, covenant was like a contract, but it's deeper than a contract. It's, it's how in ancient times they would make family out of non-family. It's a binding agreement, but it's a committing of people to one another. And, and God looks at Abraham and he says, hey, I'm committing myself to you. I'm bringing you into my family. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a, a father of a nation. You're going to have many descendants. I'm going to give you this land, and then through your offspring, the entire world will be blessed. And so he commits himself to Abraham, and we see that God is faithful. That Abraham, in his old age, he has a son named Isaac, and the covenant is passed down to Isaac. God commits himself to Isaac, says, I'm going to bless you, and through your offspring, the entire world will be blessed. And God is faithful to Isaac and Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. They have twin boys, uh, twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Esau, the one who was born first, 
He, his name means red because when he was born, he was red and he was hairy. And he grew up to be strong. He grew up to be rugged. He liked to hunt. And he was his dad's favorite. Jacob, he was soft. And he didn't like to hunt, but he liked to cook. And he was a mama's boy. And so the two brothers from the get-go, before they were even born, they were in contention with one another. They were, were fighting within the womb of Rebekah. And God tells Rebecca, he says, hey, you've got two nations within your womb. Two nations, but here's the catch. The older is going to serve the younger. And so what God is, is doing here is he's passing down his covenant like he promised, but this time it's not gonna pass to Esau. It's gonna pass to the younger brother, Jacob. And, and Jacob, um, his name means heel grabber. That's what it means in the Hebrew. It means deceiver. It means the one who strives and he's in contention with others. And that's the story from, from the get-go with him from his birth. When, when they are born, when Esau comes out, Jacob is grabbing onto his heel. And that's why they named him Jacob. And, and Jacob would be someone who would be in contention with others. That he would be a deceiver, a trickster, a manipulator. And that's the pattern of his entire life. See, Jacob, when his brother Esau one day was tired and exhausted and just hungry, Jacob convinced him to trade his birthright as the firstborn son to Jacob. And so he took advantage of his brother. Later on in life, when Isaac, their father, was getting ready to pass his blessing on to Esau as the firstborn again, Jacob and his mother came up with this scheme and he, they deceived their father Isaac and Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau. And when Esau found out, he was infuriated. He was, he was livid. He said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Isn't he rightly named the deceiver? He's cheated me now twice. And Esau was infuriated and he wanted to kill Jacob. And remember, he was stronger than Jacob. And, and so Jacob was terrified and had to go on the run. He had to leave his family. He went to a distant land. And then while he's in this land, he sees this woman named Rachel and he wants to take her as his wife. And she, he goes to her father, Laban, and he says, you can have her as your wife, but you have to work for me seven years first. And so he works for Laban for seven years. And the Bible says those seven years were like days because he was just so in love with Rachel. And so at the end of the seven years, they throw a big wedding, have this big uh, wedding feast. And the Bible says, but behold, the next morning when he woke up, it was Leah. When he woke up, it was not Rachel, it was Leah, her sister. And what you find is the deceiver had been deceived. That Laban had tricked him and said, hey, well, it was only right. Leah's older than Rachel. And so we couldn't really give Rachel first. It wouldn't work that way. He said, but hey, if you work for me for another seven years, then you can have Rachel too. And so Jacob, he takes two wives and, and with that family dynamic, having two wives, there's contention within, within his own family. There's, there's striving within his own family. But even despite all this, he, he flourishes, he, he, uh, his flocks multiply, but then he, he ends up deceiving his father-in-law Laban. He tricks him and Laban gets mad and, and Jacob has to go on the run from Laban. So we see that Jacob's entire life is one where he is living up to his name. He is constantly striving and grasping for self-preservation, grasping for blessing, blessing that, that was his before he was even born, that was promised to him, but he's still grasping for that. He's deceiving, he's manipulating, he's orchestrating events for his good. And, but despite all this, what we see is despite him 
deceiving and orchestrating, manipulating, God is continually faithful to Jacob. That God committed himself to Jacob before Jacob ever even lifted a finger. That while, while he was still in the womb, God promised his covenant to him. That when he, even after he tricked and deceived his brother and his father, when he was on the run, Jacob's gonna see a vision where God is gonna promise to bless him and to pass this covenant along to him. Even when he's in contention with Laban, there he, God causes him to flourish and to, to prosper. And so he's faithful there. And then even as he's leaving Laban, he looks in chapter 32 earlier in the verses, he looks and he sees an angel and an encampment of angels there with his camp. And he says, this is God's camp. God's camp is here with us. And so what we see is despite Jacob's manipulation and trickery and deception, God is continually faithful to him. And, and just as an aside, it, have you ever felt like maybe your sin has negated the promises of God? Have you ever felt like, like you're too far gone? If you have, this story is really good news for us because it shows us the hope and the faithfulness of a God who loves us and a relentless grace that chases after us. And so the story of Jacob is one of so much hope. So, so Jacob looks, he sees these angels, this God's camp. And he says, this is God's camp. And he names the place Mahanaim. And what that means is two camps. And so he says, there's God's camp here. And then there's Jacob's camp here. And what he's, he's doing is he's showing just the, the tension within his own heart. He's, he's got this, this, uh, this disposition to say, hey, sometimes I trust God. Sometimes I'm going to trust him. Sometimes there's God camped here, but I still like being the ruler of my own camp. There's oftentimes I'm going to find myself relying on myself. I've got to strive and I've got to do it. I'm going to trust that God's going to provide. Yes, but then I've got to strive. I've got to do it. I've got to do my own ability to make sure things work out for my good. And so there's this tension within Jacob that's playing out. And it plays out throughout the rest of this chapter. Because Jacob and his family, his group, they're heading back home and he's about to face Esau. And if you remember, last time he encountered Esau, it was not good. Esau hated him. Esau wanted to kill him. And remember, Esau had the ability to do so. And so Jacob, he starts doing what he does best. He starts trying to orchestrate events, manipulating, striving. And he sends these messengers out to his brother. And the messengers say, hey, your servant Jacob, he's coming home and he's got all these gifts for you, hoping that maybe it would appease Esau. But when the messengers return, there's no message from Esau. In fact, the message that they bring is, hey, Esau's coming he's coming to meet you and he's bringing like 400 men with him. He's bringing like a small army with him. And so Jacob is terrified. He, he knows that he's no match for Esau and he is terrified. And so he, again, he goes to work. He does what he does best. He starts manipulating and orchestrating. He divides his camp into two camps and he says, hey, maybe if Esau comes and attacks one, then the other one can escape. And so he starts striving and manipulating and orchestrating. But then we see another side of Jacob. Jacob then, from there, he falls on his face before the Lord. He cries out to God in just a, a prayer of humility where he, he says, God, I'm not worthy of all that you've done for me. I'm not worthy of your love and your grace and your faithfulness to me. Please, Lord, please deliver me. And he, he reminds himself and reminds God of God's covenant promise to him, the promise that he made to his father and to his grandfather before him promise to bless him. 
And he calls that to his memory and he cries out to God, please, God, please save me this day. And so we see him relying and trusting in God. But then right after this prayer, he goes back to being Jacob. He goes back to doing what he does best. He, he sets up his camp to where they can do these waves of gifts. So he creates these different layers and he gives them all these gifts, these gifts that are fit for a king. And he sends them out in waves in hopes that when Esau meets the one wave of people and all the gifts, he'll be like, oh man, this is nice. And, and by the time he looks at all the gifts, another gift, a wave of gifts come. And he's like, oh, even better. And then another and another. And so hopefully by the end of all this showering of gifts that is fit for a king, Esau will spare him and spare his people. So he orchestrates all these things. And after he gets it all set up, it says he lays down to go to sleep. He lays down to rest for the night, but he can't rest. His heart is restless. His mind is racing about what's coming next. And so he, he gets his wives and he gets his children and his possessions and he sends them off. And then there Jacob sits by himself, alone, his mind racing, his mind preparing for what he thinks is about to be the fight of his life that next day. But what he doesn't realize is the fight of his life is actually gonna come before the sun ever rose. And so that's where we pick up in our passage this morning. So we're gonna read through Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32, and then we're gonna break it down. So starting in verse 24, it says, and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was point, put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is that that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat of the sinew of the thigh that is on his hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So Jacob, like we said, is all alone. He's, he's by himself. He's, his mind's racing and his heart's unsettled thinking about the next day and what it's gonna bring. He can't sleep. And then out of nowhere, this mysterious man just comes and starts wrestling with him and fighting with him. And it brings up some questions. We're like, who is this guy? And what's his deal with Jacob? Why is he mad at him? Why is he fighting Jacob? What's going on here? And what we're gonna find out, what, what Jacob comes to find out is that this isn't some ordinary man, that this is God himself who's come down to, to wrestle him. And so Jacob here was preparing for a fight, but then God came and picked a fight with him beforehand. And we ask ourselves, why? Why does he do this? Because what we know about God is God is all powerful. Like God doesn't have to come down to pick a fight with Jacob if he wants to defeat Jacob. God is the being that is sustaining the life of Jacob. All he's gotta do is just stop and he's, he's done. All he's gotta do is utter the words and, and Jacob's life is ended in an instant. He doesn't have to come down and physically fight him. And so what we see here is there's a bigger purpose here. 
What we see is God is trying to get a message across to Jacob. He's trying to teach him something and tell something to him. And so he starts fighting him. And this fight is a microcosm of Jacob's entire life. His entire life, he's been in contention and fighting with everyone around him. And here, he's fighting here with God. And they're wrestling. And I don't know if you've ever horsed around and wrestled with friends or anything, but, but wrestling is exhausting. Like, after a few minutes, you're just worn out. And here it says, they wrestled all throughout the night. And it got to the point where it says that God saw he had not prevailed. And again, it's a, it's a question. How... how Isn't he God? Like, he could have just killed him in an instant. He could have defeated him instantly. What does it mean that God had not prevailed over Jacob? Was Jacob just better than God? And no, you got to remember that God had another point he was trying to make. Jacob just wasn't getting the message. The imagery that comes to my mind is it's like Jacob stands up and God says, no, sit down. And then Jacob stands back up and he says, no, sit down. And then Jacob stands back up and he says, okay, sit down for real this time. And he forces him to sit down. And that, that's exactly what God does. It says he touches his hip and it wrenches out of socket. That, that hip joint is one of the strongest ones we have and, and to, to wrench it from socket takes an unbelievable amount of force, but yet God just touched it. And that again shows that this is not just an ordinary man. And so he touched it, he wrenched it out of his socket. It would have been unbelievably painful for Jacob. It, he would have screamed in pain. I don't know if, if some of you here are Alabama fans. You saw a few years ago where the starting quarterback, Tua, he got tackled and his hip wrenched out of socket. And you could just see him wince in pain, the tears on his face, because it's just so painful. And so here, picture this. Jacob has been wrestling with God. He's exhausted in every way. He's drenched in sweat. He's bruised. He's bloodied. He's physically broken, and and Hosea says, in tears, he's crying, and he turns and he grabs onto God's heel. He grabs onto God and cries out to God and says, please bless me. Please bless me. See, Jacob's entire life, he's spent living up to his own name. He's striving and grasping. He was born grasping his brother's heel. And he's been grasping at power and self-rule. He's been grasping at self-preservation and at blessing that really was already his. He didn't have to grasp for. So he spends his life striving and striving and striving. But now what he sees is his power is not enough. What he sees is he's, he's weak. He's in, his power is insufficient. And so he turns and he grabs onto the heel of God. He clenches tight to God And in tears, he begs him for blessing. He says, God, you have what I need. God, my own power is not enough. God, I am am unable to to do what I need to do. God, you, your power is sufficient for me. And so he clings on to the feet of God. He says, please bless me. I'm at your mercy. And then God looks at him and he asks him a question. He says, what is your name? Now, God is all-knowing. He's sovereign over all things. And so when God asks a question, it's never for new information. When he asks a question, it's for the one who he's asking the question to. So he says, Jacob, or he says, what is your name? And Jacob's response is a confession. Jacob's response is echoing what, what his brother said earlier, where he says, I am rightly named Jacob. You can almost hear the defeat in his voice when he says, I'm Jacob. 
I'm the deceiver. I'm the liar. I'm the cheat. I'm the one who strives and strives and strives and is in contention with man. I'm Jacob. And God looks at him and says, yes, that is who you were. That was your name. But I'm giving you a new name. I'm going to call you Israel from now on because you have striven with God and with man and you have prevailed. Now, again, he says, you've striven with God and you've prevailed. And, and I don't know about you, but when I think of prevailing, the, the picture of someone being victorious and prevailing, this isn't the picture. Like, I don't picture a, a grown man laying on the ground, drenched in sweat, utterly exhausted, bloodied, bruised, physically broken, and weeping and clinging to another man's feet saying, please have mercy, please bless me. That doesn't look like victory to me. That looks a whole lot more like defeat. In fact, that looks like admitted self-defeat to me. And that's the point. You don't prevail the same way in God's kingdom. In God's economy, to prevail is to admit defeat. In God's economy, it's to prevail is to admit weakness. In God's economy, it, to prevail is to say that my power is not good enough, but God, your power is. It's to come to the end of yourself. It's to say, my own strength is not enough, and so God, I need you, and I'm coming to the strong one. And so God names him Israel. Israel, that name means God strives, God prevails, or it can also mean uh, to strive to prevail with God. Both come to the same conclusion. God strives, God prevails, says, hey, God is victorious, submit to him. Or to strive to prevail with God says essentially, hey, remember the way you prevail with God is to admit defeat, to admit your weakness and then submit to him. Both end with us submitting to God's power. So he calls him Israel. That's the name that's gonna be passed on to his descendants, to his people, the the nation of Israel, the Israelites. And, And what God is saying is, hey, there's not two camps here. There's not God's camp and then Jacob's camp. There's one camp and it's all mine. There's God camp and you are in my camp, Jacob. I am the commander, I am the ruler, I am the king and you're in my camp. See, God let him fight and fight and fight to show him that his power was not enough, to show him that he's weak, but then to show him that his power was enough for him. And so Israel then pleads with the man and says, says, tell me your name. Please tell me your name. And in other places, God's gonna tell people his name. He's gonna tell them who he is. But here he doesn't. He says, why, why are you asking this question? And, and what, it, what it's saying, what, he, what he's trying to get to, to Israel is saying, hey, you know who I am. Better yet, I know who you are. I've been for you since before you were even born. I've been committed to you. Even when you were running and you were deceiving and you were toiling, I was there working for your good. I was still committed to you and committed to my promise. I'm here with you, Jacob. I'm here with you, Israel. It's the same God, the God of your fathers that I made covenant to them. I'm the same God that's here working for your good. And so it clicks with Jacob. He calls the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God or facing God. And what he says is, I saw God's face. I've been in the very presence of God and he spared me. That word spared carries the connotation that you've been plucked or snatched from certain death. 
He said, I, Jacob, a sinner, a deceiver, have been in the presence of a holy and righteous God, and yet he had mercy on me. He spared my life. He blessed me. And then he walks away with a limp. And this limp, we're told, is a reminder. It's a reminder not just for him, but it's a reminder for all the people of Israel that every painstaking, hobbled step is a reminder of his weakness. It's a reminder of God's strength and God's power. It's a reminder for him to fully trust and fully depend on him and not on himself. So his limp is a reminder and he hobbles out to face his brother Esau. Remember, he had no chance against Esau even before this. Esau was stronger, had more resources. It was a, a no contest. Like, it was a battle he wasn't gonna win. He now is coming into this battle exhausted, having stayed up all night, bloodied, broken, bruised, yet he was exactly where he needed to be. That was exactly the best state for him because he's going into this battle in weakness, but he's going in the strength of God. That in his weakness, he is resting in the full power of God who goes before him. He's exactly where he needed to be. There's no better place. And, and we see what happens is it works in his favor. When he faces Esau, Esau says, man, why'd you send all these gifts? You didn't need to do that. He, there was no contest there. God had gone before him and it ended up working out for his good. So, so what does this mean for us? How do we, what do we take from a story like this? I wanna give us two principles that will make one statement that we can remember and remind ourselves of. The first principle is this. In your weakness, turn and cling to Jesus. In your weakness, turn and cling to Jesus. So here's the thing, we are all so much like Jacob. We spend our lives striving and striving for self-rule and self-reliance. In fact, that's the original sin. That's, that's what happened in the garden. Eve looked, she saw the forbidden fruit, she saw that it was good, it was good in her eyes, so she reached out, she grasped for it, and she took it and she ate it. And in doing so, she chose self-rule and rejected God's rule. And then Adam did the same, and every other man and woman born of Adam does that. We all strive and strive for self-rule. We reject God's rule, and this is called sin. We spend our lives in toil and striving and grasping for, the, for peace, for joy, for contentment, for fulfillment, for self-preservation and blessing. We spend our lives restless and spinning our wheels in the result that we get, the wage that is paid for all of our work, Romans 3.23 says is death. The wages of sin is death. That we spend our lives striving and striving and striving and nothing will satisfy. And ultimately what we get for all of our striving is a life full of emptiness and an eternity full of judgment. And that's our condition. But there is hope. There is hope because the God of Abraham is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. And Abraham would have an offspring that would be born in Bethlehem. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, both man and divine, fully God and fully man. He was the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He lived the perfect life in full obedience to God. He was blameless and innocent in every way. And then he went to the cross to die a death that he did not deserve. And on the cross, he became the ultimate sacrifice for sin. 
He died on the cross and they took his lifeless body and they placed it in a tomb. And it seemed as though God's great rescue had failed. It seemed as though death had prevailed. But what we know on the third day, God breathed life into Jesus. He came to life. He arose from the grave with victory. He arose from the grave, prevailing over sin and over death. And through his resurrection, we too have hope to prevail. How? We take the path of Jacob. We come to the end of ourselves. We recognize our own weakness. We recognize our own inability to fix things and make things right with God. And then in humble desperation, we we confess who we are. We say, I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a cheat. I'm a gossip. I'm an adulterer. I'm a sinner. I'm Jacob. And in humble desperation, we turn and we cling to Christ, pleading with him for his mercy, pleading with him for his blessing. And when we do this, he spares us. He snatches us from certain death and blesses us. Not a promised blessing of material goods or or good circumstances, but a blessing and a promise that, that even when bad things come, we trust and know that he's working for our good and for his glory. A promise that that we'll have a peace beyond understanding, a promise of joy that we can't even comprehend, a promise that there will be a day where he will wipe away every single tear and we will dwell with him for all eternity. That is the promise and the blessing that he extends to us. And so for some of you, this is your step this morning. You have spent your life spinning your wheels, striving and striving and striving for self-rule and self-reliance but you've received no lasting peace, no contentment, no fulfillment. Here's the thing, if you have done everything you possibly can think of, if you've expended every effort that you have trying to fix things and make things right, if you've come to the end of yourself, then you are exactly where you need to be to experience the hope of Christ. In your weakness, turn and trust Jesus. In your weakness, turn and cling to him and experience his mercy and experience his blessing. For many of you, you've walked with Christ. You've had this time where you've turned and trusted him. But here's the thing. Here's what we understand. It's old habits die hard. And so for us, the second principle is in your weakness, turn and cling to Jesus and walk with a limp. Walk with a limp. It is so easy for us to, to fall back into the pattern of Jacob, the pattern of our old lives. To, to say, yeah, I've got God's camp over here and that's nice, but I also, I've got my own camp. I wanna call my own shots. And yes, I'm gonna trust him at times and do things his way at times, but I also wanna do things my way. I'm gonna trust in my power and my ability. Have you ever found yourself just restless like Jacob? Laying awake at night with your wheels, just spinning of all the things, all the, the tasks that have to be done. You, you, you spend your life exhausted from all your work and all your toil. You feel just weighed down by stress. You're, you're short with your, your wife and you're, you're harsh with your kids. You, you neglect your spiritual disciplines. You're just spinning your wheels and you find yourself just like Jacob. So, so what do we do when we find ourselves like that? How can we, how can we overcome that? I'll tell you, a few years ago, I, I found myself like that. I was was found myself stressed and trying to manipulate and orchestrate things for my good. I tried to lean on myself and my own power and my own understanding. And I was operating under my own strength and my own power. And I 
started to understand and see this in my life as a pattern. And so I wrote down this prayer and I want to share it with you. This is the prayer I prayed. It said, God, I enjoy being the God of my own life, but I know I'm not a good God. God, give me the courage and strength to relinquish control to you in the areas I have not done so. I know in my nature, I'm someone who likes having control over certain things. And I know you designed me in that way for a purpose and that it's got its strengths. But with that gift, please allow me to know when it's good to let something go. And so essentially I was praying that, that God would give me the strength to relinquish control and depend on him more. And not a week or so after I prayed that prayer, after I wrote that out, I was playing a flag football game and a guy came down on my foot and I knew immediately something wasn't right. And I went to the doctor and found out that my foot in the, in the bones in the middle of it had been disjointed. And I was put on a scooter for a few months. And then after the scooter, a boot for a while after that. And what I found was my life was interrupted. That quite literally, I could no longer do everything all on my own. I was forced to depend on others and depend more on God. I found that in that season, in that time, God took me, he, he shaped me, he molded me, he moved me from self-reliance into dependence on him. And then afterwards, when, when it was all said and done, when I was out of the boot, for the next year or so, I walked with a limp. It, it hurt when I walked, I felt it. And even today, all these years later, I still feel it at times. But what I find is that limp is a reminder to me. It's a reminder of my own weakness and my own inability. And it's a reminder of God's strength and his power. It's a reminder that I need to live my life in full dependence and full trust in God. So, so what do we do when we find ourselves restless and, and in self-reliance? We walk with a limp. We remind ourselves that we need God. We remind ourselves of our own inability and our own uh, powerlessness and our own weakness. Uh, the, the way we can do is identify and look for areas where, where we're tendency, we have a tendency towards self-reliance. Look and find where are your anxieties? Where are your fears, your, your stresses, your insecurities? Where's your, your discouragement? Where's your restless thoughts? Oftentimes the object of these things will show you an area of life where you are leaning towards self-reliance in your own strength and your own power. So we identify these things and then we throw them at the feet of Christ. We submit them to God and say, God, I'm trying to do things my own way, but I wanna do it your way. God, I'm, I'm stressing about what the future holds, but God, I know you hold my future. God, I, I'm striving and striving and striving, but I'm gonna trust in your strength and in your power. Now, this is not an excuse for, to be lazy and say, oh, well, I'm just letting God do everything for me. That's not what it's a call to do. It's a call to live and operate from a place of dependence and live and operate from a place of trust. Yes, you still go and you, you work your job and you try to provide for your family and you have these friendships, these relationships, you do all these things, but you do them from a place fully trusting and reliant on God and his promises and his design. We, we remind ourselves we, we need to remember that 100,000 tons of our own effort and strength and ability doesn't hold weight to an ounce of God's ability. We daily wake up and say, Christ, I'm relying on you. I'm trusting in you. God, direct my steps these days. Let me trust and walk in light of you and your promises. We walk with a limp. And that's my hope and that's my prayer for, for us this morning that each and every one of us 
we would recognize our own weaknesses, we would turn and cling to Jesus, and they would walk with a limp in full dependence, trusting God. Thank you.